0: Sometimes I wish I had never learned to read or form any conception of duty, civilization, religion, for I would have been, and am at heart, a splendid savage, nothing more. Frederick Russell's Lament, which is how I read that statement, reveals the deep paradox that lies at the heart of his whole life and career, a paradox that the soul of the frontier partisan from the 17th century right on down to today. Frederick Russell Burnham embodied what I call the frontiersman's paradox. He was a late stage frontier partisan, active at the very end of the 19th century and at the beginning of the 20th. He actively chose to make himself a frontiersman and a prospector and a scout. He sought out men of earlier generations and developed the skills and mindset that they had adopted more or less by force of circumstances because they had to. And being a a self-created frontier partisan, his sense of identity and his whole ethos was wrapped up in the virtues and values of the Scout, so the outrider of civilization and empire. he found the civilization and empire that he helped create a path for totally uninspiring and being a literate feller he said as much in writing it is the constructive side of frontier life that most appeals to me the building up of a country when the place is finally settled I don't seem to enjoy it very long it's not just that civilization is bland It actively erodes the the qualities that Frederick Russell Burnham prized the most. His biography, Steve Kemper, writes, Burnham believed deeply in certain values that he found among frontiersmen, soldiers, and certain native tribes. Courage, sacrifice, self-discipline, self-reliance, physical and mental toughness. For him, these weren't platitudes or abstractions, but daily practices that could determine the fate of individuals and nations. He lamented what he saw as their decay in the 20th century. Burnham was self-aware enough to realize that he would have been happier, it would have been easier on him psychologically to be a, uh, a splendid savage and nothing more, but he was doomed to be something more. He was also a man of his era, in which a belief that Anglo-American civilization was superior technologically, economically, politically, morally, was an article of faith among elites and among white American and and British frontiersmen alike. In essence, Frederick Russell Burnham adhered to the same beliefs as any of those who espoused the doctrine of of manifest destiny or the uh, the civilizing mission of the European races, The land and its resources should belong to those who would put them to the highest and best use. In that formulation, that meant white men, especially the English-speaking people. Burnham hardly endorsed and enacted the attitudes that were expressed by his friend Theodore Roosevelt in Roosevelt's History the Winning of the West. The most ultimately righteous of all wars is a war with savages, American and Indian, Boer and Zulu, Cossack and Tartar, New Zealander and Maori. In each case, the victor, horrible though many of his deeds are, has laid deep the foundations for the future greatness of a mighty people. Kemper writes, As an agent of this triumph, Burnham believed he was furthering high ideals through practical actions that demanded a steep toll of sacrifice and bloodshed. After conquest came responsibility to the conquered, what Kipling called the white man's burden. To preserve civilized values against the ever-prowling chaos and savagery required vigilance and sometimes violence. All of these values and attitudes helped shape the continent and the world that we inherited. Well, this sort of outlook is is anathema these days. If If Burnham was a better-known historical figure, he'd surely be canceled for it. Um, I'm actually a little surprised we haven't heard any outcry to that effect yet. Cancellation would be wrong and stupid, of course, as as so-called cancel culture fundamentally is. It's better by far to understand Burnham, who deliberately set out to embody the American icon of the frontiersman. Understanding him, we can understand what drove men like him The noble characteristics we need to preserve, along with characteristics like heedless prodigality, avarice, and a sense of racial superiority that we'd prefer to jettison. His biographer Kemper gets it right, I think. The past is often depicted through a single lens, in which the actors are portrayed as heroes or racist imperialists, victors or victims, as if historical truth is a crisp choice between fixed positions. But the past, like everything made by humans, is far more muddled and thorny than that, by turns admirable, misguided, appalling, inspiring. Much like Frederick Russell Burnham. In his telling of it, Frederick Russell Burnham was born into frontier partisan warfare. He was born in Minnesota in 1861, and the next year the Dakota Sioux, related to but not to be confused with the the Western Lakota, rose in a furious uprising against their their white neighbors. While the Dakota had grievances over shoddy treatment by white traders and the federal government, this is a case where it's really hard to see any justification for the level of atrocity these native warriors committed. On August 17th, four young Dakota warriors were returning from an unsuccessful hunting trip when they stopped to steal some eggs from a white settlement. These youths picked a quarrel with the hen's owner, and the encounter turned tragic when the Dakotas killed five members of this family. Sensing that they would be attacked, Dakota leaders determined that that there was a war at hand and seized the initiative, and uh, led by a, uh, a chief named Little Crow, the Dakota attacked local agencies in the settlement of New Ulm, Minnesota, and in this uprising, some 500 white settlers lost their lives, along with about 150 Dakota warriors. And uh, Burnham family lore has the infant Fred being hidden away from these marauding Sioux. In his memoir, Scouting on Two Continents, Burnham writes, Left alone in the log cabin except for myself, an infant of two years, my mother was keeping a sharp lookout for any sign of hostiles. Not many nights earlier, she had seen the sky turn red and learned soon afterward of the burning of New Ulm, where 300 men, women, and children had been tortured and slain. Early one evening, as she stood in the doorway brushing her hair, she suddenly spied with horror a band of Indians moving out of the timber along the creek not far away. Realizing that she could never escape if hampered with her baby, she decided instantly to hide me in a stack of newly shocked corn. The corn was too green to burn, and if I should make no outcry, I might escape discovery. So she tucked me into the hollow depths of a shock and earnestly abjured me to keep perfectly still, not to move or make the slightest sound until she should return. As she was young and strong and ex- exceptionally fleet of foot, she managed to reach some hazel bush on the edge of the clearing just as the Indians surrounded the cabin. She saw the hostiles hunting all about, and then some of them started on her trail, but she was hidden by the cottonwoods as she moved swiftly along the stream. Through the increasing darkness and her desperate speed, she succeeded in outdistancing her pursuers and reaching a barricaded cabin six miles away, but long before she reached safety she saw the flames of her own home rising to the sky. At daybreak the next morning, she returned with armed neighbors to look for her baby. She found me, as she often loved to tell blinking quietly up at her from the safe safe depths of the green shock where I had faithfully carried out my first orders of silent obedience. So that's the Burnham family lore. We should probably acknowledge at this point that there are some historians who really dislike Frederick Russell Burnham and miss no opportunity to attempt to debunk his stories of his life and career and uh, Burnham does give them opportunity to do so. Um, there are often in his writings chronological and geographical anomalies um, and uh, and he could be sloppy with dates and uh, and name people incorrectly conflate, one individual with another spell names wrong, um, scouting on two continents is, is not a tight work of history. It's a memoir. And, uh, Burnham got some details of the wrong, of the Sioux war, the Sioux uprising in Minnesota wrong in scouting on two continents. He refers to the Sioux leader as Red Cloud rather than Little Crow. And, uh, The book was clearly written more or less off the cuff and and out of memory, which we know is not reliable. Um, There's more to it than that, though, I think. I think we need to also recognize that Burnham was narrativizing his life. And he ordered events and experiences in a way that served the theme of his development as a scout. I don't think that that was done dishonestly. I think that that was just the way he thought of himself. And and looking back on his life through his old age, he saw all of his life unfolding as the development of this, at that point, uh, very modern day frontiersman. And uh, I think that it's probably fair to say that he remembered some things maybe as they ought to have been rather than, they actually were, Um, and we'll we'll touch on that more in a little bit. Um, As I say, some historians have what what feels like a a really personal animus toward Burnham, and they treat errors and conflation as evidence of untrustworthiness, and basically they think that he was a braggart and a liar, and we should establish at this point that I don't I do think that he stretched the blanket on some things, especially in his depiction of his youth, again, serving as a narrative in which everything was bent toward turning a young Frederick Russell Burnham into an ace American frontier scout. The thing is, he did become an ace American frontier scout, and the evidence of that is completely clear. He did learn the craft in the land of the Apache and take his knowledge and skill with him to fight in two wars in Matabililand in what is now Zimbabwe, and, uh, and then in the Boer War in South Africa. Whether he gussied up the details some, well, he wouldn't have been the first, last, or only frontiersman to indulge in some yarnin'. So, wh- whatever the veracity of his, of his family lore, Burnham was raised from his earliest days, in an environment where his family and neighbors had been profoundly traumatized by a truly horrific spasm of indigenous violence. Again, they had legitimate grievances, the Sioux, but their rampage there in Minnesota was absolutely murderous. And, uh, And it resulted in Abraham Lincoln president at that time ordering the execution by hanging of 38 of the leaders of the Dakota Sioux. So Burnham's childhood was just filled with stories from this uprising. And of course, children being children, they played settlers and Indians. And it's not hard to imagine that a deep cord. Of Memory was going to get strummed in him when he was confronted with another extremely violent uprising 30 years later in Africa. Another aspect of Burnham's character that's worth noting here is that while he was a partisan, he always eventually saw the other side of the coin. In Scouting on Two Continents, he writes, Those were rough days and fierce resentments. Today, recalling all the crimes of the Indians which were black enough, one cannot but cast up in their behalf the long column of wrongs and grievances they suffered at the hands of the whites. Then hatred dies, and I can entertain the honest hope that they have all reached the happy hunting ground of their dreams. This is pretty typical Burnham. Um, On the one hand, certainly a, a manifest destiny, Anglo-American supremacist. On the other hand, he always did have a certain level of sympathy for the native peoples that he was fighting, or um, in fact the the Boers that he would fight in in South Africa, or or scout against in South Africa. So Burnham's father, Edwin, was a pretty stern and rigid and, and joyless throwback to the family's Puritan ancestry, and his mother, in contrast, was a lively soul, and she would sneak off to dances, and, and uh, which Edwin frowned upon, and uh, she encouraged Fred in his innate romanticism and the reading that fed it, and like so many of our, of our frontier partisans, especially in, uh, in the later days, books really shaped him, and they implanted what would prove to be sort of a North Star for Burnham, which was the desire to go to Africa. Edwin Burnham was badly injured when he fell on ice while carrying a log, um, and the log fell and... Uh, and hit him in the chest and, and crushed several ribs, and he developed some pretty serious respiratory illness out of that. Um, and so the family moved to California in 1871 in the hopes that it would, you know, the climate there, the, um, the notoriously uh, mild climate of, of Southern California would improve Edwin's damaged health, um, but it didn't, and he died in 1873. The death of my father in 1873 compelled me to join somewhat in the new order of things and take up the strenuous life. My mother's health had broken, and as my brother Howard was but three years old and I not yet thirteen, there was no visible support for the family. But when some kind uncles offered us all a home in the East if we would return, I determined to stay in California and make my own way. And that's what he did. Um, As a very young teenager, Burnham took up jobs as a messenger rider and as a hunter for caravans that were hauling bullion out of the California desert into Los Angeles. And he roamed all over areas that I knew well when I was growing up in in Southern California. And this is where he first met men who had once been mountain men or scouts for the U.S. Army. And uh, he began picking up tips for moving through desert and mountain country safely and for observation and tracking the foundational skills of a scout. And that's pretty much where that became a calling for him, I think. And uh, unfortunately for him, uh, or perhaps fortunately as the case played out, his training was interrupted when his uncles compelled him to return east to Iowa to go to school. And he dutifully did so. But He spent most of his time engaging in Tom Sawyer shenanigans. And he also met his Becky Thatcher there, a schoolgirl named Blanche Blick, who seemed to really respond to his ambitions to travel to Africa. But when he was apprenticed out for some unspecified but obviously very dreary occupation, he pulled a Kit Carson and ran away to the great... Southwest. And speaking of Kit Carson, um, like that great scout, Burnham was notably small of stature. He stood about five foot four and in his prime he probably weighed in at about 125 pounds. So really uh, e- even um, back in, in the day he was very much on the on the small side. However, he was broad-shouldered and deep of chest and had an athlete's physique, and he was also noted all his life for having very piercing, light blue eyes. And he was very boyish in his appearance well into his 20s, but uh, he had a a kind of a presence to him that was far more imposing than his his physique would, would indicate. So here's Frederick Russell Burnham, 15 years old, remember Carson was 16 when he hit the Santa Fe Trail, and he's footloose and fancy-free in a way that teenagers can almost only dream of, and Kemper writes, After escaping Iowa, Burnham began what he called a period of glorious wandering, he drifted southwest across Missouri, Kansas, and Oklahoma, sometimes trailing remnant herds of the once-countless buffalo. Once, when he and several companions were surprised by a blizzard in the Texas panhandle, they swaddled themselves and their horses in green buffalo hides, hair-side in. The hides froze solid, but saved their lives. Burnham paused in Texas, working as a cowpuncher, driving herds to slaughterhouses in Kansas. To make a stake, he, he ran a string of Mustangs from Texas to Missouri. He blew his take on fancy spurs and other cowboy trappings and was soon adrift again. At some point during those years, he and a boyhood friend named Homer Blick briefly returned to Iowa, not to Clinton to see Burnham's family, but to Prescott, 275 miles west of there, where Blick's parents had moved with his sister Blanche, the Clinton girl who had listened eagerly to Burnham's dreams about scouting in Africa. The schoolgirl's sister still remembered me, wrote Burnham, and when again I rode into the wilderness, there was much in my heart to disturb my plans for the future. But I rode alone and far. So Fred ended up in Arizona, which at that time was the wildest frontier in the continental United States, um, and would remain so for quite a few years, um, both because of, of the long-term struggle to deal with the last of the Apache resistance there, but also due to um, a great deal of banditry and outlawry on the part of white and Hispanic citizens of the Arizona Territory. It wouldn't actually get statehood status until 1912 because it was so wild. But uh, that was the attraction for Frederick Russell Burnham, and... So in, in these Arizona years, in his late teens and 20s, Fred repeatedly attached himself to aging veteran frontiersmen and soaked up their knowledge and expertise on survival in this very harsh geography, both human and physical, of the American Southwest. It was Apache country, Apacheria in the last years of, of Apache freedom. Probably the most important amongst these informal apprenticeships was time spent in the service of an old-timer named Holmes, who had reportedly ridden with Kit Carson in Fremont, John C. Fremont, during some of their California adventures and misadventures, which we described in uh, in the podcast series on Kit Carson um, in California and, and Oregon. Uh, Holmes was was a curmudgeonly irascible old man um, who did his best to chase off the the young people who gravitated to him, but his cantankerousness didn't chase Burnham away. And they spent uh, about six months in the mountains of Arizona, New Mexico, and in northern Mexico, and it, it amounted to a master class in tracking and bushcraft. Kemper writes, Holmes taught Burnham survival skills that often saved him in future years. How to protect himself from snakes, floods, and forest fires. The best way to ascend and descend cliffs. How to find water in the desert and forage for food. How to travel by the stars and maintain direction during daylight without a compass. How to double back, avoid ambush, and hide his trail. The tracks of other horses brimmed with information. How many horses had passed? When? Were they walking, trotting, or galloping? Was it a war party or a hunting party? If a single horse, was it running free or carrying a rider? Was it tired or fresh? Holmes could study a horse's track and follow them when mixed with hundreds of others. This may seem unbelievable, but it was not uncommon among good trackers who could trail a horse for hundreds of miles. The same was true for human footprints. Even when someone tried to eliminate tracks by covering his shoes or moccasins with burlap, he compressed the desert surface and left a smooth shine that, in slanting sunlight, contrasted with untrod ground. A little later, operating out of Prescott, Arizona, Burnham apprenticed with a scout-turned-prospector known as Deadeye Lee, who had served under General George Crook, In some really brutal anti-Apache campaigns in central Arizona in the 1870s, in some incredibly rough, difficult terrain. And from Lee, Burnham picked up an important understanding of the psychological aspects of being a scout. Kemper writes, The scout also needed to develop the psychological strength to spend long periods by himself, Ten days in the mountains alone, said Lee, especially if it's hostile country, will teach you more than I can teach you in six months. In his writings, Burnham often refers to this lesson. A scout spent most of his time alone, completely self-reliant, amid enemies who wanted to kill him. Essentially, the scout had to accustom himself himself to being prey. There is nothing that sharpens a man's senses so acutely, wrote Burnham, as to know that bitter and determined enemies are in pursuit of him night and day. In many lines of endeavor, errors may be repeated without fatal results. But in an Indian or savage war or in a bitter feud, one little slip entails the absent mark forever against a man's name. One key to success as a, as a scout, really any kind of outdoorsman in, in my view, is, is a tolerance for, for solitude. Um, some people crave it. And uh, I have to say that there's nothing that I enjoy better than a hike by myself out in the, in the woods and the mountains. Some people can't handle it at all. And, uh, and there's a spectrum, of course. Um, spending days and days and days alone can uh, really get inside a man's head and actually make them pretty careless. And uh, Burnham seemed to thrive on his own and uh and enjoy solitude um but it did have an effect on him as we'll see a little bit later um with all of this training under his belt burnham set out as on his own as a prospector which was a pretty common occupation in uh, arizona territory during that period of time um everybody was out looking to do what uh Ed Shifflin had done um, wandering in the, in the desert and, and finding a, a mother load of silver at what would become Tombstone. Um, Burnham was not a successful prospector in his late teens, early 20s. He, uh, like most of them, he, he ended up ragged and broke. So he headed for a rumored silver strike in the town of Globe by way of the Tonto Basin and there he was taken in by a homesteading ranching family and became enmeshed in the violence that plagued that beautiful and remote and rugged region in the 1880s. Burnham didn't name this family in his published memoir, um, but uh, the draft of his... Scouting on Two Continents, which uh, his biographer Kemper examined in, uh, I believe is was in a collection in Yale, uh, named them as the Gordon family, which is affirmed by Don Dadera, who was a an Arizona journalist who deeply researched the Tonneau Basin Feud, also known as the Pleasant Valley War. Uh, the family has also been identified by the gun writer Jack Lott as the Wells family, and that's how I described them in my chapter on Burnham in my book Warriors of the Wildlands. And I now believe that this was a deliberate obfuscation because, even decades after the violence of the the feud years ended, people were reticent about identities and events. Um, so I think Gordon is the is the right name, and as before, Burnham sought mentorship from Old Gordon, as he was called. Uh, Old Gordon was a, uh, a buffalo hunter, a former buffalo hunter, and a skilled marksman with a sharps rifle. And Burnham credited him with teaching him a great deal about long-range shooting. And somewhere in this time, Burnham also acquired a 4440 40 caliber model 1875 Remington revolver, that would remain his sidearm throughout his whole career, um, from America to Africa. And uh, it's famously captured in a photograph of a collection of his weapons, which uh, I used for the cover image of my book. Um, He practiced with that revolver incessantly, uh, on foot and in the saddle until he became an expert. And he later wrote, the master of the revolver need have no fear of any one man. The drunken bully or the giant pugilist is as much at his mercy as a child. A bullet in the instep will calm the most ferocious wife-beater. I always thought that that was kind of an an interesting formulation. Um, I guess that uh, that Fred must have run across more than one wife-beater out there in the in the wilds of Arizona. But you can imagine a young man boyish looking man who's short five feet five foot four inches tall and and hundred and twenty five pounds soaking wet um, you know he he wasn't going to be able to hold his own in a fist fight so he's definitely one of those uh, those people that for whom the the revolver was an equalizer and he made sure that he was very good with it and and uh, and Burnham was, in fact, a, a crack shot all through his career with both rifle and and revolver. And it's one of Burnham's most salient characteristics: this drive to educate himself and train himself in the skills of the scout. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, I think that that he established it as a calling and a craft and a profession in his teens, and he he just worked at it very diligently in a way that you don't really see a whole lot in uh, accounts of frontier lives. Burnham reports that, uh, that the Gordons were pulled into the feud that dominated this region uh, by indebtedness. In Scouting on Two Continents, he writes, "...they had borrowed money in Globe to carry over their cattle." and were ordered by their backers to join a certain faction and to kill or drive off all the stock of the other, or their own herds would pay the forfeit. The old man stoutly refused to obey, whereupon a certain faction bought up his store debts, and failing to get instant cash, attached his cattle. I turned over to him the little money I had made in the mines, but it was only a drop in the sea of his troubles. He decided to cash the cattle away in the mountains, and I left town and came out to help him. The only son, John, and I rode point and flank with the main herd, the girls with the dogs bringing up the gentle stock. The old man covered the trail with his long rifle, but two sharp young deputies keen to make a name for themselves and possibly get a bunch of the cattle in payment followed hot on our trail. They caught up with the girls. The barking of the dogs reached the ear of their brother. We let the herd go and galloped back. Needless to say, we would not let the deputies take away the girls' cattle. We had a wordy war. The girls claimed the animals as their personal property. One of the deputies dismounted. A dog promptly bit him. He shot the dog. Everybody drew, but only one more shot was fired. The deputy dropped dead, and the other one threw up his hands. It was not known who fired, one of the girls or John or myself. It's all ancient history now, but the fact is it was none of us. It was the old man. He had trailed the deputies and with his long rifle had killed his man at the astounding range of 800 yards. It would be a wonderful feat with a modern flat-trajectory high-power rifle. He was an old buffalo hunter, yet in all likelihood it was a chance shot with his black-powder rifle. Thus fate dealt us all a terrible blow. In that one act, a whole family and their best friend crossed the Rubicon that divides the law-abiding citizen from those who live beyond. The hour had now struck when, to gain protection from the law, it was indispensable to join one of the factions. This was done. Arrangements were made to give up some of the cattle to the captured deputy, and with his connivance, a tale was built up for the officials at Globe. It was not long before help was needed again by the feudists and had to be given, both in money and in personal service. At this time, I used to practice incessantly with a pistol, with both right and left hands, and especially from a galloping horse. So the implication is that that uh, that Fred became a feudist. Did this actually happen? It's hard to say. It's a detailed account. Um, it has the ring of of reality and veracity to it, but there's virtually nothing that corroborates it in the record. Don DeDera considers this story as among the likely but thinly documented cases surrounding the feud, the Tonto Basin War, the Pleasant Valley War. And again, that brings us back around to this question about Frederick Russell Burnham's reliability and veracity. Burnham's account of being enmeshed in the Tonto Basin feud has led some to question that, and there are definitely problems with Burnham's account. The chronology is an absolute mess. The Pleasant Valley War, which ended up being a a feud between two families, the Grahams and the Tewkesburys, kind of simmered through the early 1880s, but it didn't turn murderously violent until 1887, and Burnham, by his own accounts, was gone from the region by then. Burnham, like most early writers on the feud deliberately concealed identity, identities and infusticated events to protect the guilty. Um, th- that was very common. I mean, people, people deliberately, uh, created misinformation or disinformation about the feud. Um, contemporary feud historian Eduardo Pagan, who, whose work, I respect a lot, writes Burnham off as what he calls a hossy umper, a teller of tall tales, or just a liar. Um, Burnham's biographer, Kemper, is a lot more generous. His descriptions of the sinister atmosphere in Tonto Basin and the understanding of the issues carry the tang of authenticity and firsthand experience. He clearly was entangled in a feud and endangered by it. Animosities between cattlemen and sheepmen had been simmering for years before the first recorded murder, not just in Pleasant Valley, but in the wider area of Tonto Basin. The Gordons Ranch, for instance, was about 25 miles south of Pleasant Valley. Burnham entitles his account the Tonto Basin Feud and never mentioned Pleasant Valley by name. Over the coming years, he undoubtedly discussed these violent days many times with his Arizona friends. Perhaps these conversations in Burnham's memory telescoped time and place. At any rate, the discrepancies and inaccuracies seem to stem from imperfect recall, not deceit. And his eyewitness accounts mirror others' reports. Well, okay. Um, I lean in Kemper's direction, but I have a little spin to put on that. Burnham's memoir, Scouting on Two Continents, and his collection of essays, Taking Chances, are not works of scholarship. They're not works of history. They were written late in Burnham's life as an old scout's reminiscences, and he clearly didn't spend any time or effort cross checking with other historical sources. As I mentioned early on in this this podcast, he's frequently sloppy about names and jumps around chronologically, which is pretty typical when somebody's just spinning out the tales of his youth. Again, of greater import, in my estimation, is what I consider Burnham's drive to narrativize his life. His accounts give shape and structure to a career that bounce from occupation to occupation, and project to project, and literally all over the globe. Through all of this, Burnham tied his identity to the role of the scout, and I think he felt a need in his reminiscences to portray himself as the dedicated professional scout, heir to a long and storied frontier tradition. It's also worth noting, though, that his writing is not self-aggrandizing. In fact, it's, it's sometimes pretty self-effacing. He tells often of episodes where he made mistakes and or failed in his missions, and he does not push himself to the forefront of events. Which, um, and Kemper mentions this as well, that's that strange behavior for a braggart and a liar. Um, Arizona was a very violent place throughout the 1880s, um, and as I mentioned earlier, the, the violent reputation persisted so long that it actually delayed statehood. I have no doubt that Burnham was embroiled in some troubles and ructions in the, in the Tonto Basin, central Arizona. In looking back on it, it was probably easy and maybe even unconscious on his part to kind of pour it into the mold of this, this feud that had become famous, um, it was it was notorious in its time, but it had become even more noted um, because Western novelist Zane Gray used it as the backdrop of his novel To the Last Man, which was published in 1921, which is four years before Scouting on Two Continents hit print. I can't prove it, but I am sure that Burnham was aware of the Zane Gray novel and, and had read it, and that that had some impact on his recall of events in the Tonneau Basin some 40-odd years before. Here's the thing. Burnham was dogged throughout his entire career by people who just didn't believe him and didn't like him. And we'll see how some of those instances played out in subsequent episodes. But he demonstrably did have the skills and capabilities he prided himself on. And the later dramatic episodes in his career are well-documented, even if controversial. And debunkers have often themselves been pretty thoroughly debunked. Burnham consistently won trust and positions of great responsibility from very serious military and businessmen. And he delivered the goods. So, do I think that that Frederick Russell Burnham was a liar and a phony? No, I do not. Do I think he's 100% reliable in his memory and his accounts, especially in the formative years? Nope. Look at it this way. He ain't lying, he's telling a story. The other major aspect of Burnham's life in Arizona in the 1880s, was his role as a scout against the Apaches. He was not by any means on the level of operations of the likes of of Al Sieber, who served as as a chief of scouts um, for the U.S. Army. And and Burnham was one of any number of men who operated as kind of freelancers, uh, informally performing reconnaissance patrols when communities felt themselves threatened. Um, And this was... This was Burnham's opportunity to put everything that he'd learned from his apprenticeships to work. In his collection of essays titled Taking Chances, Fred details the loadout for an extended 10-day scouting patrol that he was sent out uh, on to uh, recon the location of some Apaches that that, uh, the Army was concerned were going to uh, stage a raid on Globe. And this is an, it's interesting enough to explore it in, in some detail. So sent out uh, to for this ten day patrol, he he uh, went to lay in supplies for his ten day scout. One felt slouch hat, one greenish brown woollen shirt, one suit of light underwear, four pairs of light socks, one pair of Indian made buckskin leggings. One pair of hand-sewn light shoes, the very best leather. One pair of brown overalls, lightweight. One large red silk handkerchief for signaling. Two small gray silk handkerchiefs. One spool of strong linen thread for night guard. One small canvas water bag. The water bag was later dipped in melted tallow and beeswax. This type of bag is not as stiff as an army canteen or an Indian gourd. It can also be gummed with pine pitch and then rubbed in dust to prevent stickiness. When empty, it lies flat in a pack, and when it is necessary to swim a river, the bag can be blown up and used to carry a rifle and a cartridge belt. I also bought two Indian tanned and smoked doe skins, which weighed about a pound apiece. I used them for my blankets at night, and they also furnished me with string when I needed it. In a pinch, doe skin can be braided into rope. Nothing that our best-equipped stores now offer can quite take the place of skin for long, hard hikes where every ounce must be considered. It is a wonderful protection against wind and cold on high plateaus, as well as a good shade when throw over, thrown over a thin, straggly bush on a burning desert. My pack was not like the Regulation Army pack, but like that which the old trappers used, and could be changed each day according to the supplies I carried. For arms, I took 50 rounds of shells and a Winchester carbine model of 1873, a light, handy repeater which used a forty four cartridge and black powder. The Winchester did not have as long a range as a government Springfield, but that was of little consequence. For an Indian fighting, it was seldom that we had to shoot farther than 200 yards, and often only a few feet. A hole was bored in the butt of the gun, in which to carry the jointed cleaning rod. By enlarging the hole and discarding the rod, I had space to carry a good string pull-through, a surgeon's needle and some silk thread with which to sew a wound, a small file and screwdriver for repairing the gun. I also stowed in a piece of ivory poker chip with which to make a sight, and a little screw can of Vaseline for the pull-through, instead of taking the marrow or the bone of a deer and greased patches which were often used by the old trappers. I carefully stretched the green hide of the front leg of a deer over the barrel of the gun so as to conceal it, leaving only a small slit for the sights to project through. If a gun is covered with deer hide, one may walk within a few feet of his enemy or prey and never be noticed. This precaution is well worthwhile, for it is remarkable how in the far the dark barrel of a rifle can be seen. However, this practice cannot be followed in wet countries." I also took with me a piece of charcoal to use as camouflage, and an inch of pencil and some writing paper instead of depending on a knife and blood or charcoal for writing on bark or rock, as the old scouts did. A lead bullet is also handy to write with. The most important outf- item of my outfit was the ten days' rations, for I could cook nothing, nor could I light a fire. I therefore drew heavily on Charlie Sayer's sack of dried venison or jerky, which I hammered into a fine dry powder and mixed with an equal amount of flour. This I baked into rather solid but highly nutritious bread in Charlie's Big Dutch Oven. There is superior nourishment in good venison. Of all the meats in the world, I believe one can live longest on venison, but like beef, it must be prime. I've never known it to be hurtful, to the worst dyspeptic. In a small buckskin bag, I tied some Mexican pinole and pinochet, a really excellent combination of corn and cane sugar, far better for the southwest than pemmican. In the wars in Africa, our iron ration was 50-50 pemmican and chocolate, which is also good. A pound a day of this concentrated food will leave a man hungry and rather gaunt at the end of 10 days, but he will still be very strong. If this ration can be supplemented with boiled dock leaves, pigweed, wild onions, or any other edible green, one has a fairly balanced ration. He goes on to talk about uh, caring for his, his horse um, and making sure that, uh, that his horse was well shod and also had, um, had a sheepskin to cover his horse Turk's hoofs as well as his own shoes, and thereby cross dangerous canyons or high ridges with a good chance of escaping the keen eyes of the Indians. Foot gear for both man and beast in the wilderness is next to food of the highest importance. Each country has its foot problems and answers, from the seal soaked muckluck of the north to the cactus proof teguas of Mexico. A man cannot march for far without shoes, nor can a horse be ridden very far if not properly shod. I have shod horses with green rawhide put on almost like a moccasin. The Apaches on their raids rode very hard, and when the ponies were exhausted, they killed and ate them, unless they could turn them out near some waterhole to recuperate for future use. Burnham's story of this 10-day scout, which stretched to 11, is an example of his storytelling that does not burnish his self-image and reputation. He did pretty well spying out and dodging Apaches, but he fumbled at the goal line and, by his own admission, was lucky to have avoided the stiffest of, of penalties. On the afternoon of the 11th day, I happened to remember that there was a small cabin down in the pines by Old Buffalo Smelter, which was used by the charcoal burners, and that in their rushed town by the Indian Scare, they might have left some food. You see, Burnham was hungry. So I went down and circled around it. I found every trail safely covered with unmarred insect tracks, and sure enough, inside the cabin I found several pounds of flour, some old bacon hanging from a string in the roof, and some unwashed dishes in a frying pan. The men had evidently grabbed their blankets and fled just after a meal. Then began a great battle between ravenous hunger and scout caution. Hunger said, Make a fire, cook bread, fry bacon, there are no Indians here. You saw the only ones in the whole country. Caution said, Don't make a smoke. Don't fire a gun. Don't stay in an empty cabin unless you fortify it. I tried to compromise with hunger by cutting off and eating some of the raw bacon, but as it was very rancid, hunger settled the debate. I went down to the spring for some water, gathered a little wood, and made a fire in the crude fireplace, and in an incredibly short time, I had made some frying pan bread, which I enjoyed as only a hungry youth can. When hunger was appeased, common sense gripped me and shouted, "'You little fool! Cover your smoke!' Pick up your gun which is lying on the bunk and get out of here at once. I started to obey orders and was just covering the fire with ashes using the frying pan for a shovel when the light in the cabin suddenly went dim. I turned to find that its only opening, the door, was blocked by three Apaches with guns pointed toward me. And there was my gun lying on the bunk just out of reach. To attempt to seize it would call for three shots from them at a distance of about eight feet. I was trapped like a rat and all because I had acted the fool. I knew better. Hours on end, old scouts had taught me caution, and there I was, trapped like a tenderfoot, all of their teaching wasted. My appetite had conquered me. The penalty should have been death. But fate had ordained otherwise, for Fred Sterling, the government scout, had sent Scarface Charlie, the Modoc Indian scout, and two Apache friendlies to bring me in. They did not expect to trap me in a cabin, but seeing smoke, Indian-like, they had investigated. The next night, I reported fully to Captain Burbridge. He cursed me quite a bit but finally said Sonny don't take it to heart too much we all do foolish things at times your report is satisfactory rest up a bit I have important work for you so Fred's adventures in Arizona wound down after the early 1880s in a series of of failed prospecting endeavors so he returned to Iowa seeking the hand of the young girl who listened to his boyish dreams of adventure. But her father, reasonably enough, insisted that Burnham demonstrate an ability to support a wife before he'd grant permission for his daughter to marry. And, you know, Fred, look at Fred's prospects, right? he a cowboy, and he was a scout, neither of which had any prospect of a suitable family living. So what could he do? He was back to the desert to hunt for gold. He and a partner named Dick Chilson finally actually did hit pay dirt. Um, and uh, a mine that was a, a paying proposition paid pretty well, too. They sold out to someone who could develop it. And Fred used the proceeds from that, his first real success in life, to uh, return to California and buy a 20-acre property in Pasadena. And he figured that he would grow oranges, which would be a, a suitable way of uh, of settling down with a wife, even though he didn't know anything at all about growing oranges. But uh, it was enough of a start in life that he could marry Blanche Blick, and so he did. Blanche had to have known what she was getting herself into, and uh, for the next several decades, she would seldom make any complaint about pulling up stakes and pursuing some new dream of adventure and wealth that, uh, that Fred came up with. The orange thing didn't work out, and Frederick Russell Burnham was not cut out for the life of a gentleman farmer, uh, which probably surprised no one, including him. As he put it, the mountains and the deserts began calling again, and in the dim distance returned my lifelong vision of Africa. So, Burnham married in 84, and by the early 1890s, the American economy was in a significant depression, um, the worst economic depression um, probably before the, the uh, Great Depression of the 1930s, and prospects seemed to be dim in the American West, which was settling up and and becoming much more civilized um, so Fred was looking at at international frontiers and uh, he looked at Patagonia maybe and uh, Then, no, they changed their mind. They made up their mind that they were going to go prospecting in Panama, and uh, Fred actually decided to uh, go to school to become a mining engineer for for that endeavor. Yeah, that didn't happen either. Burnham wrote that on January 1st, 1893, they changed our minds and left for Africa. So we'll follow Fred and Blanche Burnham's trail into Rhodesia, and into war in our next episode I want to thank the patrons whose support make the Frontier Partisans podcast possible our newest patron Wade McKnight Chaz Clifton Bob Dice Alan Godseff Jerry Nunnally Christopher West Matthew Free Live Free Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. And any of those of you who are listening who are interested in supporting Frontier Partisans, the the blog and the podcast, um, the information, the link to our Patreon page will be in the show notes, um, as will the uh, source material that that I'm using for this uh, this podcast series. Uh, It's mostly Burnham's own memoir, Scouting on Two Continents, and his book of essays, Taking Chances, which are delightful to read, and I highly recommend to anybody who enjoys frontier history, and also uh, the excellent biography written by Steve Kemper, um, and released just a, a, a few years ago, titled A Splendid Savage, and I'll link to those in the show notes as well, or list them in the show notes as well, if you want to delve into this very interesting life in, uh, in greater detail. So, uh, yeah, it's off to Africa and uh, sort of the, the meat of uh, Burnham's adventures in our next episode. So we'll see you down the trail.